What's on your phone? Oh, just some WhatsApp groups that I have mm-hmm. to tend to because I have a social evening out. I'm showing you something, though. You're showing me a thing. I don't even think we need to discuss what it is, but it's from the 80s. So what I want to say is a starting point, because you just showed that to me, and Linda's in it. Mm. And Linda w- wasn't a musician. So what was it, what was his need about including her in his music? I say to the man who does a spinoff podcast with his wife. What? <laughs> Hello? Welcome to Beetlejuice. Hello? With Jeff Lloyd. What? Because everything's better with the Beatles. Yeah, it's just something a bit more, because it does sound a bit dead when you hear it, just as an intro. How about this then? Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. This is Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Yeah, we'll have it, we'll have it. What was that? What was that, do you think? I think it was the same impulse as John. This woman is who I want to be with. I'm a musician, so how how can I get her to be so strange? But thinking about someone just think about other professions and doing that. Yeah, it is strange. But then the outcome was good. And probably he was just happier having him around and then that having her around and that helped him make better records. I think so. I think coming off the back of the Beatles and, and he just not... needs a little companionship. Yeah, and the, the I... you know the breakup. Oh, it's especially so... of that partnership with John was intense. You know what I have genuinely been thinking about this week because of the Pete Best stuff from last week is thinking like how this idea that they'd gone. I don't think I understood that they'd really gone through quite a few drummers to get to Ringo. I thought it was like they had this Pete best guy and eventually he got the boot and they brought Ringo in. And then when you think that they were just, then it's so, I just want to say, I think it's so sad that they broke up. (laughs) Okay. But they did. the reason I showed you that video, did you, did you hear me mention a kissogram? No. So I mentioned when I was going through the Beatles birthdays that Paul had a kissogram for his 40th birthday and it was at the filming. Oh, of that video. I became really preoccupied with this this week and did a lot oh, of... I know it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I did a lot of research into it because I find kissograms so strange. And so what, someone shows up and kisses you on the mouth? It's more like, a, I think you maybe would call it a singing telegram. Sure. Okay. But fine. it's like a sexy singing telegram. Is there any other kind? <laughs> Are you thinking of Buddy the Elf? Oh, no, I was just thinking... No, actually, I wasn't. I was just thinking that those that thing I, if, if someone says picture a singing telegram it would be sexy although in the film clue someone gets shot it doesn't matter we're going off but okay so this kissogram i don't think was booked as a present i think she took it on herself she was an actor who would knock around in british if you think of brit i know you don't really know this stuff but like british comedy of the 70s and 80s had a lot of scantily clad women running around in it Okay. Which is weird to me that you don't know Benny Hill because over here we're always told, oh, Benny Hill was even bigger in the States. No, was- I th- but I think that's a hole in my knowledge. I don't think you need yeah, to worry about like it. Yeah, there are like Benny Hill references in 30 Rock and stuff. Okay. Yeah, I think it's just a thing that I don't know about. Anyway, so, so that was a trope of British comedy at the time. And this young woman, her name was Susie Sylvie, she appeared in sitcoms and sketch shows and things. Maybe she was booked as an extra on this video. And here's what she had to say about it. Ready? Mm-hmm. I told a girlfriend I wanted to do a singing telegram for him, but didn't know if I dared. So she dared me. So I took all the gear along to the studio where Paul was making Take It Away. Just before lunch, I slipped into my fishnets, 
suspenders and black lace corset and covered it with a dress I could easily peel off when the moment came. I was shaking like a leaf. As Paul started to leave the set for lunch, I ran after him and shouted, Paul. He spun around and as he did so, I took off my dress and stood there in front of him in my gear, singing a special version of All You Need Is Love. Then I gave him the birthday congratulations telegram. He thought it was amazing. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> That's so uncomfortable. Tells you about his ability to deal with an awkward situation, though. Yeah. I bet he does a good job with an awkward situation. I would not do well in that situation. I just like lingerie being called gear. Yeah. Also, I was thinking fishnets were really something when I was younger as a teenage boy. Oh, the fishnets. idea of like, like a girl in fishnets, fishnets really did it for you. Stockings and suspenders. Mm. And, and you don't really hear of any of those things anymore. No, I wonder what the youths are doing now to be sexual together. I don't know. Would you consider fishnets for a birthday treat for me one year? I'm too old. You're not. I am. What did you think about the fact that the Beatles made a pact to never buy each other gifts? Loved it. I felt like um, I almost could have cried because it was <laughs> this way that they they knew each other it it was what it signified to me mm. was profound intimacy i i just i felt i felt connected to them in that i was like that's like that's so beautiful is what i thought they were just these teenagers though and they thought it was soft so they decided when we're never going to do that i loved it i don't know what else to say i ju- i was moved almost to tears by it as a fact were you more or less moved by that than by yoko hiring a skywriter oh do you know what i think i was i think i missed some of the like i listened to that but i think some of the details okay, of the gifts okay. i um i glossed over because what i wanted to say about your birthday this year which was on tuesday was that I tried to do a lot for your birthday this year because our lives have been sort of joyless. So I thought we need, and you get so much joy out of like, I'll just say festive thing, like festivities. Treats, I like treats. treats. But, but, you know, the idea of a big day that goes from morning till night is really your thing. And I thought, I've got to give him that. This He's had nothing nice happening. It was amazing. Nice I had such a great birthday. I had one of my best ever birthdays. I loved you it so much. You had such a good birthday that the day after your birthday, you cried. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I was Don't like, are you going to cry? And I was like, oh, he's going to he's gonna have like, a, like his eyes are going to go misty because he had such a nice day yesterday. That's how satisfied you were. I wasn't like a, a, a seven-year-old crying because it wasn't my birthday anymore. I was crying at <laughs> uh, how felt, moved I yeah, was you at everything you did for me nice for my your birthday. Day was, yeah. All your friends got you this stuff um the thing that went slightly wrong was that i was i booked us this this place for dinner which is somewhere we would never normally go maybe i can help out here it was such a great location great and it was just fantastic to be out after lockdown it had the air of a provincial all bar one yes both in terms of its aesthetic and in terms of the clientele it was the sort of place where you'd think okay these are some people lining their stomachs before they go to a discotheque but the food wound up being good also interesting detail as we decided to do a nice walk along the thames before heading home we saw no one about except runners yes you said it must be for the london marathon yes well the next day at drop-off, I see one of the other mums, who's a runner. I say to her, hey, are you doing the London Marathon? 
She goes, I haven't decided yet. I go, you haven't decided yet? Do you know that it's been bumped until October? I did not know that. No. There you go. Oh, that is interesting. So I, what they, they I, think it's, for... I think that's pretty boring. But anyway. Um, we spent some of my birthday talking about your um, increasing hatred of marathon runners. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was when... <laughs> So we wound up spending the whole day together and it got to a point where I think you went from really delighting in my company to finding me exhausting. No, you think I did And I started really going off on people who run marathons. <laughs> and your point was that I was, I was, I really didn't know what I was talking about. And I had this general unjustified rage it's, people who run marathons. I feel when we first met, you had some pithy observations about them. And now and I'm really doubling down and I, I Yeah, yeah, it's, that's it's fair. I mean, what are you going to be like by the time you're 50? Oh my God. Maybe I'll be, maybe I'll. Attacking people who run, maybe you'll be a yeah. marathon runner, serial killer. Boo! Maybe I'll just go when they run and I'll boo them. <laughs> okay. Have I talked about, yeah, that's I one of my, it, oh yes. God, I'm so limited in like what I've discussed. <laughs> that's not true. I, it's it not is, true. It is. But you do have some, I believe what they call pet peeves. Which is fine, but then, like, shut up about them. Like, we've done six of these, and in two out of the six, I just, I mean, <laughs> that's a limited brain at work. Okay, a question for you on the Beatles now. Mm. What, what was the song that references She Loves You? All You Need Is Love. Right, so you discussed that in this week's radio show. And then you're like, oh, but they did that in quite a few songs. And I was wondering what other songs that ha- that happens in. Oh, there's quite a few. Okay, so it's just, there's like, part of their thing. What were they thinking? What's the, what was the... I think it was a couple of things. I think part of it was them being very aware of how much they'd changed and being, I don't know if it was slightly embarrassed by their earlier oh. incarnation. I, I don't think. So it's like they're confronting the embarrassment rather than pretending like it never happened? I think so. So in Hello Goodbye, which was just after All You Need Is Love, there's a bit where they put on the mop top round collared beetle suits. Sure. And all wave like fab beetles waving at the camera, like they were mocking something from ancient history when it was themselves four years previously. Mm. And I think the the little drifts into She Loves You and Yesterday, and then when they were doing recording sessions, it would happen with some frequency, was, it, was, it, was, it, was a little bit of that. Sometimes I think it was real fondness for the songs. Sometimes, it, I don't know if those songs feel a bit like seeing your baby photos or seeing your teenage poetry to them. So I think there was an element of that. And then the other thing was, as their myth grew... People would look for meanings in songs, famously the Paul is Dead conspiracy, and I think they would like playing with that. What do you think of it? I think just generally I I think that, like, they're geniuses, so if they're doing it, it's justified. I really like the idea that they're sort of making fun of... They're, like, er like they're, they're making fun of the versions of themselves that they were. I think all of it is, is kind funny. of in the spirit of making fun. I was just, you know what I was just thinking about how much I like John Lennon? I think force of nature. We, we t- talked about that phrase, force of nature, last mm. week. John Lennon is somebody I would have described as a force of nature. Is there any of the, would you not have described Paul or George or Ringo as a force of nature? I don't think either Ringo or George are a force of nature. You don't, don't think, think George Harrison is a force of nature? Because if I think of a force of nature, it implies a very big personality. And you don't think George had a big personality? I think he had a real personality and a lot of character, but I think there was an understatedness an to un- it. You can't be understated and a force of nature. I don't believe so, no. And there was an understatedness to George. Yes. And Ringo 
what? I think he's got a lot of charisma. I think he was the exact right person for the Beatles. you don't think he's a force of nature? Not in the same way. I think John Lennon was a force of nature to the point that that's that's almost exactly what he was. He was one of those people with such an unusual energy and life to him that it had to come out somehow. And it, it just happened to be through rock and roll because the point of history was born at. Do you know what would make me really happy if I had my own podcast? What? I would ask my listeners, like I was just, as we're talking, I'm thinking of all the people that I know that would describe themselves as a force of nature and I would beg to differ. (laughs) (laughs) And I was thinking that if I had a podcast, I would ask people, I wouldn't really, but I think a fun idea is give me three sentences in which you describe to me someone who thinks of themselves as a force of nature, but isn't. I think you're a force of nature. Well... I don't know what to say to that because it's just too obnoxious for me to agree with you, (laughs) right? Like, I can't say I'm very loud. I don't know, you know. I Here's here's a good way. I have a lot of energy. Here's a good way of summing it up. It applies to you, I think, but not to a lot of people. If you'd met John Lennon, I don't think, regardless of fame, I don't think you would forget him quickly. I don't think there was anything forgettable about that man's presence. Mm. Do you think my brother is a force of nature? I think he is. And I think my mother is as well. Your mother definitely is. And my dad probably isn't. No, I'm not. I'm not. I, you, you, the thing is, is that you are, but you have to, um, you have to really, really know you. You have to, you have to like see you in these very specific contexts to see it in you. But then, then I don't think that. I think a bunch of people who have worked with you would probably think of you that way. Yeah, that's not great, is it? <laughs> okay, I'm going to move on to another question. Okay. The, so when you when you said that there was this show, was it in 1978 where where John and Paul played with Stevie Wonder in Los Angeles? Oh, it wasn't a show. It was just a recording sesh? Yeah, so John Lennon was on The Lost Weekend. You know what I mean by that? Yes. I, if you're testing me, May Pang was there, and um, and he was allowed to... He was, he was exploring away from Yoko so that he would ultimately come back to her, but they spoke, like, every single day. Mm. That's what I know about The Lost Weekend, which for someone who doesn't know much about The Beatles, that's kind of good. It is good. It is good. And it was very hedonistic that's the key to understanding this oh thing oh my god so oh. <laughs> you don't do well with that do you no i'm thinking about how sexy i think john lennon is i just think he's my ultimate dude in addition to riz ahmed <laughs> and you anyway what and was- so so it was very hedonistic time um he'd got studio time booked for these sessions so he's there at the studio in los angeles and there's a bunch of musicians of varying status as you would say status Mm. there one of whom is stevie wonder and then guess who comes to visit polly paul and linda and linda yeah and ringo is one of the people working on the sessions he's not there but his kit is set up so paul goes and sits down at ringo's drum kit and starts playing Uh uh-huh and it's it's a jam session it's a horrible phrase isn't it i hate it we were watching the Roy Orbison thing from, I think, late 80s, the yeah, black and white Roy Orbison right. and Friends, where it's a tribute to to him. And there's a bunch of famous musicians, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Waits, lo- loads of people. And there's a bit where, I don't know, you've got six rock legends all playing guitar at the same time on stage. And I always find it really uncomfortable when you see a bunch of 
male rock stars of a certain age with their guitars all at the same time. I don't. I know what you mean, but in that case, I didn't find it uncomfortable because you're like, oh my god, it's uh, Elvis Costello and Bruce Springsteen and all these, and then other people that I'm not savvy enough to know who they were. So I just think it's fun to see them together. And then I used the phrase "trading licks" to you. <laughs> Why is that such an awful phrase? Well, it's like, it seems like you're not the right person to be saying it somehow. Jam session, trading licks, riffs. These are all words I find it very difficult to use. So can I just say, I didn't even get to my question, which is why was it so bad? And was it because you did this thing where you were like, it was so bad. And was it when you think, oh my God, what could be more magical than that combo? And was it, was it that... Paul had no business being on the drums? Was it that Stevie and John had no chemistry? What was the issue? I think the first thing is it was drug-addled, which the Beatles weren't really in the studio. Mm. Um, they they expanded their minds outside of the sure. studio and then came back. So it's, it's really uh, drug-addled. Secondly, I think there's just a strange dynamic to Lennon and McCartney at that period in time anyway. Thirdly, and, and John mentioned this in the occasion that he's, he spoke about it, there was a sense that everybody in the room was just looking at Lennon and McCartney. Mm. But it's it's just a horrible drug-addled mess. I'll play you, look, here's, a, here's a little bit of it. I've, I've just played you a bit of it, and I think it's amazing hearing Lennon's voice and McCartney's voice together after the Beatles, and there's something I find a little bit moving about the fact that to connect, going back to rock and the rock and roll records they loved before it all is the, is the way, you know, that's the way they can connect. But it's a horrible sound, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. I liked it. Really? Yeah, I did like it. Okay. Maybe I can get you a bootleg CD of that for your birthday. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, of all... Of the Beatles, all four of them. Who do you think enjoyed the luxuries afforded to them by their money and fame the most? Like, who do you think was... So when I say the most suited to fame, I don't actually mean the person who most enjoyed getting recognized. You mean who was most suited to being rich? Yeah, that's it. That's a really good question. I think a funny thing about them that gets quite overlooked is how covetous of money they all were. Mm. If you read any early interview, that's why they're doing it. They always say, why are you doing this? To get rich. It's not this thing. You would never interview Kurt Cobain. Right. I don't think, I mean, maybe you, maybe you would, but at some point, I think partly because the Beatles and John Lennon, it became about the authenticity. You know, I wanted to express my real self as a, as an artist, but the Beatles wanted girls and they wanted money. Oh, God bless. And I think when that happened, especially, I, th- I think John really loved having money early on. This is the man who eventually sings Imagine No Possessions. But if you look at, that house that he buys out in the stockbroker belt and then what he does with it, buying suits of armour and jukeboxes and gadgets. And I mentioned him having his loft knocked through and having a yeah. Scalextrix racing car set. I think those kind of, that, that that quite innocent thing of what you would say to yourself when you were 18, what would I do if I had a million pounds? John kind of goes straight out and does that and he's got a Rolls Royce. Right. And I think they all had a bit of that to them. Um. 
Here's my next question. You said that Paul wrote Let It Be in the... I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. He wrote Let It Be in the hope that Aretha Franklin would record it. Mm-hmm. Any other instances of, of him or John doing that for other artists? Yes, although my brain is a bit woolly this morning, so I'm struggling to bring them in, uh, bring them to mind. I think Paul wrote The Long and Winding Road. Do, 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 do. I think that's probably as many notes as we can have oh. without... That do, was, do. Don't do them again. Oh. Um, I don't think the law, copyright law works like that. But um, he wrote that, I think, with Ray Charles in mind. But I think offered it oh. to Tom Jones oh. before the Beatles did it. Wow. You love Tom, don't you? I love Tom Jones. What a character. Yeah. What a voice. What a mover. Oh, what a mover. The song, it's not unusual. I mean, it's just a great guy. He's he's wonderful. I isn't love he? him. Yeah. Big fan. Um I have got it in my head that George wrote something with somebody in mind, but I can't think who. Somebody like Nemo on Twitter will be in touch to tell me who is so much better. Some people are far better at retaining information at this point in my life than I am. In my twenties or thirties, I mean, the stuff was in there. But um, there was this song "Suicide" that Paul wrote when he was very young. That he always thought oh, Frank Sinatra would do a great version of this. Oh my gosh! And then sent it to Frank Sinatra, and I think who was a bit what? I'm going to sing a song about Frank suicide. Sinatra I don't, doesn't I don't, seem I don't like think a great so. person. <laughs> I'm just saying. Although he did a lovely thing. What? So the first, I think, Apple record technically was only ever a copy or a handful of copies made. It was a birthday present for Ringo's wife, Maureen, printed up with an Apple label on it. And it was Frank Sinatra singing a version of uh, The Lady is a Tramp, but singing That's Why Maureen is a Champ. Oh, all right. What a good guy. <laughs> that cancels out all the other I stuff. I honestly, I just thought about, think, like, did he have mafia ties? And then I thought, don't talk about it. They can come for me. It's <laughs> my constant fear. Um, that's my fear with Beatles and Apple Core. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> it's not on you. Oh. Okay. So when you were interviewing Diana this week. Yes. Um, the, a sentence was said in that interview, which was defining core, like, as part of a larger sentence, mm. was the phrase, defining core aspects of their personalities. And I was thinking, what do you think is the core core aspect of each Beatles personality if you had to boil it down oh if I say a Beatle to you if well, I will go, you tell me what the core aspect of your personality is to unlock this for me hey I feel can I do the core aspect of yours mm-hmm. I don't know how to boil it down to a word but it's like your sort of need to be loved which is probably anybody's, isn't it? So that I was going to say neediness, but that's not, I don't mean that like the core thing of you is how needy you are, but like you, you are incapable of managing any level of hostility, I would say. But then the other side of that is sort of all you need to come down is to just have someone be kind to you. John... Maybe it's truth. Give me some truth. Okay. I'm trying to burrow down and yeah. get to what that the core is and the truth and an intolerance for people who don't do that. Paul, love me. Love me, do. 
Joe. Oh this is good. We're going to do it in Beatles lyrics. So we have Give Me Some Truth. Oh, yeah. Love Me Do. I mean, Ringo's is peace and <laughs> Ringo does so, seem to just be peace and love at this stage. It's, it's almost like he's become a faulty toy that can only say the same thing over and over again. Yeah. So maybe that's at the core of him. Can you think about how likely I am to be that person when I'm 80? I think you're unlikely. I'm very likely. No, I'm already like repeating. I don't worry about your cognitive function. I worry a lot about my cognitive function. And and George is, is kind of a contradiction, I think. It's, it's difficult to... What's this? And help me out with this one with George. It's the thing that makes him spiritual. It's it's the it's the part of him that wants to just be in the moment. Be here now. That's uh Be here now. Be here now. Yeah. Um I'm gonna ask you now some a couple of the questions that you asked Diana. What do you think would have been different if Paul hadn't ever been with Jane Asher in the context of the Beatles and their story? I think maybe the Beatles would have been a less important band. Why? Because when they moved to London, John, George and Ringo lived the lives of working class people who've just made a lot of money in show business and going out out and live in the stockbroker belt. Paul lives with Jane's family in their townhouse in London and they are different to the type of people that he would have mixed with previously. And their type of life of the mind opens up that in him. He takes that to the Beatles. As a result of that, they push the boundaries of what it is to be recording artists. And and that wouldn't have been... If he had been, I mean, the word juvenile, but like if he hadn't been sort of coupled off and living that slightly more adult lifestyle, then that wouldn't have happened. I mean, it depends. I mean, who knows, yeah, yeah, but all, that's all the that, idea. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, the intellectual, calling them bohemian, I think overstates it a bit, but the exposure to that life allows him to be exposed to those things, which he then turns the rest of them onto. And they they all get it in, into it in spades, but I think in a way Jane Asher is the conduit for that to happen. Wow, um, what do you think could have incentivized them to get back together that wasn't offered to them? The Beatles, not mm. Paul and Jane. Paul and Jane Asher. <laughs> I really liked when Diana said yeah. therapy. I thought that was funny. Well, therapy was a funny answer, but I don't think anybody could have offered the Beatles right. therapy. I a while ago I was involved in pitching some ideas for a podcast to a huge band, like one of the biggest bands in the world that are still together. And my idea was to put them in therapy at a level so that, that you would have a therapist, someone like that, Esther Perel, who does yeah, the therapy yeah, yeah. podcast, like <laughs> a world-class therapist. Because uh. band dynamics and their relationships are so interesting. I think if you were able to get them to be honest and, and commit to that and talk about the relationships and their story from that perspective and the stuff that gets swept under the carpet, it would change the way we think about oh my bands God. it'd be such an innovative thing to do but of course no band would ever do it because the, the amount of bravery maybe you have to go like lower down the the ladder of famous bands like maybe some like a band would be willing to do it if they needed a little pup 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 mm. in their 
in their career, but it's such a good idea. Did I tell you that Mark Lewison told a story on the Nothing Is Real podcast about when he was working for Paul and then working on the anthology, he'd gone to one of Paul's parties. Paul used to throw these parties every year for Buddy Holly's birthday because um, he, him and Linda were huge fans and because he owned the publishing rights, so he had a vested interest oh, yeah, 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 in doing okay. so. But uh, Mark Lewison tells a story about going to one of these parties and it was the same day that Paul, George and Ringo had been into the edit suite to look at the first edit of the last episode of the anthology where they get onto the breakup and Paul turned up and apparently all hell had broken out as they watched each other talk about that stuff, even 20 odd years later, because it was so raw. Oh my God. Yeah. And I think all bands are like that. I've, I've, it's it's like a family. Yeah, it, it is. But then, it really is. You know, so heightened. I think I've, I've because of my job, I've known a lot of musicians over the years, and the things that bands hold grudges about with the other members, and the 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 annoyances, and the way that you'll think of a band as a fan and then you'll find out that the singer doesn't even have the guitarist's phone number and stuff. Oh like my this this, this happens with pretty much every band and whatever happened with any band happened a hundredfold with the Beatles. Yeah. So uh, what the, the the fact that the three of them managed to have some kind of relationship. That, you'll be happy years. to hear that does make me want to watch that again to yeah. think about <laughs> them listening to each other say stuff about one another yeah it's it's really interesting um you know i said that thing on beetle baby names mm. what if i was by the way yeah. i guessed that i knew that george was going to be the most popular I, I i i knew the answer that's all it's really weird that the names john and paul which were just the most everyday names when i was a kid have completely dropped out of but the, the top thing 100 is, i don't think the name the the name john to me still feels viable yeah the name paul no longer does i, th- I think it's on the upswing though i don't think it's at its lowest Fair point enough. whereas it feels like gene would go to school with a kid named george yeah there's no way that he'd be like, hey, Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. If we did get a dog, would you want to name it Polly Walnuts? Do you think that's funny? <laughs> that if we named name. it, Yeah, Polly Walnuts. That is a great name. What if in the first year of our relationship, it'd been exactly the same, but I'd said that my bottom line was that I wanted to, if we had a kid, call it Ringo. I would have left you. I wouldn't. Have, I don't think I would have stayed with you. It would have been too crazy. It would have shown... Everything else exactly the same. Yep. The intensity of feeling. Mm-hmm. But I just had always had this dream of having a child called Ringo. I guess it would have been, you know, one. I mean, then true. Really, I I probably would have stayed, but it would just be this little sadness that I like some of the other sadnesses I carry. <laughs> that you just How many go, sadnesses do you carry? Not, I don't know. With regards to the compromises you've made in this marriage, I don't want to get too dark. I did have another thing on baby names. Make it quick, so I want to eat my bagel. We've got bagels waiting downstairs. Oh, it's very, I'm very kind of you so to get us hungry, the I can barely see straight. I've scribbled some things down because my memory is terrible. And the reason I wanted to do this is it'll give you a chance to be judgmental. Perfect. That thing you like to do where you know a little bit of information about <laughs> somebody and then extrapolate from that to make sweeping judgments about their entire personality. Great. Only two of the Beatles have grandchildren mm-hmm. paul and ringo mm-hmm. 
I don't think you can tell much about them from James, Mary, right. Stella, Beatrice. But compared to Ringo, who was Jason, Zach, and Lee. Great. Right. Great names. So what I'm going to do now is give you the grandchildren's names. Oh. And see what you make of make of this. Okay. Okay. So Paul's grandchildren are Miller, Bailey, Beckett, Riley, Arthur, Elliot, Sid, and Sam. Real mix. And then Ringo's are Tasha, Sonny, Louie, Rock, <gasps> Buddy, Ruby Tiger, Giacomo, and Smokey. Oi. What a- <laughs> So, I should also add that he has uh, a great grandchild called Stone Zacamo. So there's something weird going on there with is there Giacomo an Italian? and Zacamo. Did someone marry an Italian? No, I'll tell you what I think is going on there. Go on. Some kind of portmanteau. So his daughter Lee. That's a good name. Has a kid called Giacomo. Which is crazy unless her husband is Italian. And her and his son Zach. Great name. His daughter Tasha. Has Ta- would I say it Tasha? Is yeah, T A T no T A T I A. Oh, I don't know that Tatia. Yeah, Tatia then maybe. Um, I went, Sorry, I, I Ringo went... has a daughter named Tatia. No, Ringo has a, a granddaughter. His son Zach named has a daughter, daughter called Tatia. Tatia. I did go on YouTube pronounce just to double check, it, and uh, one of those pronunciation website things, and, and okay. it said Tatia, but but Tasha, but you're probably right. So so she has. A kid whose name is Stone Zacamo. So you've got Giacomo and Zacamo in the same family. Well, I, I've got a theory about this. Go on. Zacamo, Zach is the grandfather's name. Uh huh. Mo was Ringo's first wife. So I think Zacamo is some kind of family portmanteau. But it, this is all irrelevant. And, and there's and someone then, else in the family named Giacomo. Well, Jace, I think that's some kind of portmanteau. Jacob, Jacob, and this is insane. Zach, yeah. This is insane. So you don't like a portmanteau? I think it's psychotic. So having... I think parents who go, I knew a girl in elementary school, I'll name her, name and shame, Edelin, because her her father's name was Ed and her mom's name was like Alinda. And I think it's the most narcissistic, lunatic thing I've <laughs> ever. It's like the worst as a parent, you're just like, well, you'll just be like me. Like, I'm basically giving you it's so, I mean, it's so crazy. It's not like that when people give their kid a double-barreled surname though, isn't it? It's the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. No? It, it's the, the last name is the thing that you have to take from your parents. Your first name should I, I hate it. I hate it. So having heard all the names of the McCartneys versus the Starkeys' grandchildren, and in Ringo's case, the one great-grandchild, what do you think, what judgment are you making about those two I, families? I'll tell you exactly. Yeah. I think both families are a mix of positive and negatives, which proves my point that, like, the more kids you have, the more that can go wrong. <laughs> so I assume that – I say this as someone who used to justify having an only child, but basically I think that there are some normals – who had normals, mm. and some cuckoos who had cuckoos. Because I'm hearing a mix of good names and, and lun- lunacy, and same with the <laughs> grandchildren as well. There's a lack of quality control. But I, it, it wasn't like, here's the good family and here's the bad family. It's, oh, strong names, weak names, strong names, weak names. What about Smokey? Was that a, is that in tribute to Smokey Robinson? I would be surprised if it wasn't. 
No, I don't like it. I mean, I like it on Smokey Robinson, but this kid is probably not going to be Smokey Robinson. This kid is probably going to be a cuckoo pants. <laughs> All right, can I go eat my bagels now? Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Limitless, undying love for the band who did it all. It's time now for Beetlejuice Fan Club. This is where we get to celebrate someone who celebrates the Beatles. And today, it's the host of an incredibly fresh, in-depth, and in some ways challenging podcast, which we'll come on to. If, like me, you love thinking about the dynamics of the band, what their relationships were built on, and how they changed, it is a serious rabbit hole to fall down. It's called One Sweet Dream, and its creator is Diana Erickson. Hello. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. Who are you? Where are you? What's what's the story behind you before we get onto the podcast? Oh, wow. Uh, the story of me. Uh, well, I live in L.A., and uh, it's very beautiful. Uh, outside of my apartment, uh, there is a peacock sitting on my balcony. A, a pigeon was sitting on my balcony earlier. <laughs> I, I can't really, uh, I can't really compete with that. And <laughs> in in terms of the podcast, one sweet dream. Do you want to tell us about what how you see the podcast and what what your idea for it was, and then we can maybe talk a bit more about what I and other listeners are getting out of it. Um, well, it's. It actually started as another kind of mind podcast. Um, I had two collaborators. We started this initial podcast and it sort of morphed into two separate podcasts, but there's crossover between us. But the one that I am, my podcast is One Sweet Dream. And um, I would say that the desire was, I think you and I were just talking earlier about the fact that I've always been a huge fan of the Beatles and gone very deeply into the story and, you know, sort of go deeply in and then back out and forget about it for a while and then, you know, engage again. And, you know, and I'd read the latest and greatest book and sort of think, huh, okay, well, the story's still the same and I still have all the same issues with the story. You know, I felt like it was being told one way and it didn't totally make sense to me. And then about five years ago, there was, um, there was a, an article that came out in the Atlantic and it was from Joshua Schenk and he was talking about creative pairs and partnerships and, and he profiled Lennon and McCartney. And I've actually since, uh, you know, interviewed him for the podcast. And the way he was talking about partnerships was really, um, it really re-engaged me because I thought, okay, we're starting to talk about something new and, you know, we're, we're taking a step forward in the discussion about the Beatles and so that was really exciting. And um, then I re-engaged with the Beatles and started listening to some of the early podcasts. And it just like, it was such a fun thing to hear and listen to. You know, I really enjoyed it and re-engaged in some conversations. And then, you know, some, some conversations that I had specifically with Phoebe Lord, who uh, is my partner in the Breakup Series, we started to discuss things and say, well, this didn't really make sense. And that didn't really make sense. And we thought, well, let's actually redig into everything. Let's start from scratch because we think that there are so many baseline assumptions that we've just all bought into. We've just all decided that that's the way the story is that don't really make sense. Uh, but let's challenge some of these and see if they're true. Let's sort of poke at them and see if they're true. And we found that so much of the story 
isn't true. It's been repeated. You know, it's been sort of like it was told one way in 1972 and, you know, writer after writer has taken it and repeated it. And, you know, there's been new additions to it, but fundamentally the story has really stayed the same. And um, I talked to a, a historiographer named Erin Torkelson Weber. Um, she's going to be on my, my podcast very soon. And she was talking about the fact that we're really just now entering the period where we can um, actually look more objectively at the Beatles story and get to a better sense of what the story was. There was too much politics, too much investment in cultural investment uh, before. And so we're finally getting to the point where we can tell it more clearly. So that was that was the incentive. Why do you think the story is is so off course at this point then? What what went wrong? Well, you know, I, I always use this quote and I, you know, I should write it down or learn it by memory, but it is a quote from Cynthia Lennon and she said that she found with books, and she said she had read many of them, they were factually right, but emotionally wrong. And I think it is a matter of, you know, the story has been told through events and, you know, and not taking the interpersonal dynamics into account. You know, it's it's just weird to me that sometimes I will read a book and it'll be like a litany of things that they did. And it's kind of like, well, the, these guys, they said repeatedly that they were like a family that, the, you know, the observers always talk about how incredibly close they were. And so I think if we don't understand what they were reacting to, which was largely each other, we don't really understand the story. You know, like it's a story of a family and we treat it like it's just like four individuals that really have nothing to do with each other. Although doesn't doesn't the problem with that become if you're writing a highly factual book about what type of guitar strings they used and which bed and breakfast they stayed in, then that's easy because you can collect information. Yes. Whereas, yes. and I do think your podcast does, does this really well, the, the emotional intelligence and empathy required to, to tell this story in a different way is, is just guesswork. Well, it's informed yes, guesswork, but yes, yes. Now, first of all, I love those other kinds of books because to do the guesswork right, we actually need to understand timelines and events. So that was one of the first things we did is said, let's create a timeline and figure it out because a lot of things in the Beatles world are so vague, you know, they it's like Paul was depressed post Beatles. When was this? Because actually, you know, when you track what he did, it's like, where was this Great Depression period? Because he was pretty busy, you yeah. know, and it's, you know, or John's, you know, depression period in 65, 66, 67, you know, or a lot of things have been said and they have not been pinned down. So I do love the detail, first of all. But second of all, the emotional, yes, I mean, that 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 comes down to A, being emotionally intelligent. But there are certain things that we're not just assuming that John Lennon is one way or another. We read every single article we could get our hands on about John. And I think that we looked at it from people who know, know John, like May Pang, uh, Pete Shotton. You know, we looked at all the accounts and tried to figure out what was consistent. And so, like, we learned some stuff about him, you know, and I've done a bunch of interviews and learned some stuff about him. He repeatedly says that he is 
incredibly insecure, that he's very jealous, that he's putting on a front constantly, um, you know, that he's he's soft inside. You know, there's a lot of these things that are repeated. And so we just kind of believe them after a while. This idea that he is worried about being rejected or abandoned. These are things that if you go deeply into John, and he said a lot of really interesting things in the 70s that I think have been ignored. Uh, they haven't been available even, actually. I think right now we're sort of in a golden age of information about the Beatles. But like Lennon remembers has been way too focused on. And to me, that was a performance. And so, so to answer your question, there, I think there is a certain amount of guesswork about emotional intelligence, but then we're trying to base it on some of the core elements that we know are defining traits of their personalities. Like for example, with Paul, you know, if you look at his songs, how many songs does he talk about the fact that he couldn't say the words, that he couldn't express himself, that he didn't say something? Like, so I think that we can conclude that maybe in real life, he has some a hard time talking about his feelings. You know that, and he has said he's put up, he puts up a wall. So these are just kinds of things that we're trying to incorporate. Like, okay, we know that he does this. Let's look at this scenario. We know that John, you know, tends to be aggressive when he feels insecure or defensive, you know? So we, we tried to include that. It, and, and in doing this, in laying out the timeline and in looking at it with this perspective, what have you been most surprised by? Uh, how wrong the story is. I think that the most important, there's one thing that's more important than anything is that in 1968, early 1968, John did not fall out of love with the Beatles, did not lose interest, that he remained engaged with the Beatles and Paul McCartney for the rest of his life. That's probably, I think that there's an assumption that we bought into with the Lennon Remember story, and it was highly promoted by John and Yoko, that, you know what, he was already checked out in 1968. And, you know, when he met Yoko, that's all he could think about. And, you know, and that basically he had to evolve into a different kind of artist. And I think that that's what, it was a disconnect to me. It's like, weird, you were so close and you guys were doing such great work. And that seems overnight, you lost interest. And really, that's not how relationships work. You aren't incredibly, you aren't in a marriage one day that you're committed to, and then totally lose interest the next day. There's there's breadcrumbs of problems. So either, you know, the problems ran way deeper before 1968, or else they, it didn't fall apart immediately. And, you know, looking at contemporaneous articles like the Cleve, like uh, Hunter Davies, where we've got Cynthia Lennon in late 67 saying that John was the most committed to the Beatles. Well, she said specifically that you need the Beatles more than they need you. And that's late 67. So when we looked at some of the events, some of the things that they did at the time, it doesn't bear out that John was losing interest. You know, he was very committed. What we've done there, I think, is we've given people just enough a taster of what's in the podcast. Right. Find out more. You must listen to it. It's a great in-depth podcast. Now, I've asked you to pick a song. Yes. What, what have you picked and why? Well, I picked uh, because I've been very Lennon-McCartney-centric recently in my analysis. 
And, you know, I was going to pick, I was going to pick a day in the life because I don't think it was just the smushing of songs together. I think Paul brought a lot of musical ideas that really made that song. Some of his exploration of the avant-garde, you know, the, the, um, orchestra, the orchestral swell, you know, the transitions, all that kind of stuff. The I'd love to turn you on. Like all of that Paul brought to what was a, a kernel of a beautiful idea from John. And, you know, I hear that called a John song all the time. And I really don't think it is. I think it is their joint song or um, which other one. I know this is highly controversial uh, in my life which, you know, there's, it, it's like, that's a debated song. It's, it's one of the few contested ones yes. by Lennon and McCartney, both who claim to have written the melody. Right. I think what's interesting is Paul McCartney stated in the 70s that that was his favorite Lennon-McCartney collaboration. So that actually lends great weight, in my opinion, to the fact that he did participate in the creation of that song, because John could have refuted it. And it's a weird song to choose as his favorite if he actually had nothing to do with it. But anyways, uh, to move away this, I did want to choose a song that I thought was just a fun, like really was a spectacular, exquisite song as a result of both of their contributions. And uh, I think that this is a case that like on my first level of Beatle fandom, I didn't quite get to this song. And then sort of on my deeper dive, like the second level of getting, a, you know, sort of the, the lesser known songs, uh, I really fell in love with this song, which is If I Fell. And I think that, you know, John is the primary author of this. You know, Paul says that he contributed in some sense to the melody. I'm not quite sure what, but, you know, but John is the primary author of this. But I think the musicality, the the union of their voices, like Paul really sings the lead of this song and it's the duet between them that make the song. And so um, I just think it's one of their most beautiful songs. And I think that uh, it deserves to be more well-known. And I think I, I would love it to be known as a great Lennon-McCartney song. Well, it's a fantastic choice. I'll play it in a second. Yes. Before I do that, I'm going to ask you some quick Fire Beatles questions. Okay. Would you rather have been in the audience at the first Ed Sullivan performance or in the uh, Hey Jude around the piano on the David Frost show? Hey Jude. For sure. Which Beatle would have been best at mending a fuse when your lights had gone? Paul, definitely. And the worst? John, definitely. What if Paul had never met Jane Asher? Give me 10 seconds on how that would have affected things. Very interesting question. Um, I think the Beatles would have been less artistic. Which Beatle would you let invest your life savings for you? Paul. What was the best song put forward for the White Album that was then left off it? Junk. Who was the better Alan? Their first manager, Alan Williams, or their last manager, Alan Klein? Well, it can't be worse than Klein, so <laughs> I'm going to go with Williams. What did no one ever offer them that could have incentivized them to get back together? Therapy. <laughs> Which Beatle would be best at keeping a secret for you? Oh, not John. Um, oh, definitely Paul. And what is your biggest unanswered Beatles question? What happened in 1968? What happened between Lennon and McCartney? Diana, it's a real treat uh, uh, talking to you. People should go and listen to One Sweet Dream, and there's lots to dive into. Before you go, and in the time that it takes for you to be drowned out by the A Day in the Life Orchestra, why are we still talking about this band in 2021? Because they are among the greatest 
um, artists of the 20th century. Why wouldn't we? It's basically an answer. Um.